Welcome to another episode of Gerocast, a podcast that explores the lived experience of older adults. Today we will be exploring the topics of substitute decision-making in Ontario, and specifically we'll be looking at legal guardianship. By the end of this episode, you should be able to understand substitute decision-making and the key roles of substitute decision-makers, including legal guardians, and understand communication skills, including obtaining consent from substitute decision-makers. Have you ever considered what would happen if you were suddenly incapable of making decisions on your own? Who would you trust to make the right decisions on your behalf? Substitute decision-making is a fundamental element of the informed consent process when a patient does not have the capacity to make healthcare-related decisions. As you know, healthcare practitioners are required to get informed consent before providing any type of treatment. If the patient has the capacity to make decisions, then they can provide this consent themselves. However, if the patient does not have the capacity to make decisions, then the consent will need to come from the patient's substitute decision maker. For a number of reasons, some older adults may not have appointed a power of attorney when they were still capable of making decisions. When a senior does not have a power of attorney, has no family members, and does not have the capacity to make decisions, then the substitute decision-making privileges lie in the hands of the government. However, a loved one, maybe a friend or a neighbor, can apply to become the court-appointed legal guardian to make decisions on the older adult's behalf. A legal guardian is a type of court-appointed substitute decision-maker that falls at the very top of the substitute decision-making hierarchy. When talking about legal guardianship in Ontario, it refers to becoming the guardian of a person who is 18 years of age or older and who legally cannot make decisions on their own. Guardianship is a way of protecting a vulnerable person, such as someone with a serious mental illness, dementia, or even a developmental disability. One can be appointed the legal guardian for personal care, which may involve making decisions around personal hygiene and medical care, for property, which would involve making decisions surrounding finances, or both. Today, we'll be hearing from our guest, Bonnie, who was the legal guardian for an older adult in her life. First off, she will explain her experience as a legal guardian and some of the struggles she faced while trying to obtain legal guardianship over the older adult in her life. Welcome to the podcast, Bonnie. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about your experience as a legal guardian? The person I cared for was predeceased by her powers of attorney and executors. When one power of attorney and executor passed, no one thought to redo the documents when the alternate passed. And the documents finally had to be redone with the family lawyer believed that the person requiring care was not competent to sign the documents. And she was age 95 at this point. So I understand uh, from speaking with you previously uh, that you went through the court and the legal system to become this person's legal guardian. Now, was this for both property and for personal care? 
And that's exactly it. I was added to the register of guardians regarding the specific person in my care. Did you have to document or um, keep track of the actions you were carrying out on this older adult's behalf? The Office of the Public Guardian and Trustee publishes a bulletin titled Duties and Powers of a Guardian of Property. This bulletin is quite thorough, covering, for example, authority of a garden, guardian, legal responsibilities and financial rules. The legal authorities and responsibilities are complete. You essentially become the person you are caring for with detailed records being kept and they can be audited by the province at any time. So I ended up with a huge, huge binder. Mm -hmm. Every phone call I got from the long-term care, every time I phoned them, every time I shopped for her clothes, it went into this binder. Okay. Because I, because I was able to spend her money okay. on clothes or whatever she needed. So right. I had to keep track of absolutely every penny. Did you find there were any limitations to your role as a legal guardian or anything that you found a little bit restrictive? The only thing that we were concerned about is once she passed away, my guardianship completely ended. Okay. Now, there were things that needed to be done when she passed passed away, but I had no legal authority to do them. And thankfully, the person, the lady who I looked after, she had prepaid her funeral contract like 50 years ago, and it was still all sorted out. So I was lucky that I was able to complete my moral and ethical responsibility to her uh, because I could get in touch with the funeral home, but then I had to pass it over to her. And what were your thoughts on this? I felt that as a legal guardian, I, sh I still should have had the authority to ensure the very last, you know, financial mm -hmm. bearing, everything. And I could not do that. So based on your experiences as a legal guardian, is there something that you wished maybe more people knew about? You know, this lady had her husband had passed away. She had no children. Okay. And she thought she had good backup with her two nephews um, who were in their 50s and 60s. And I mean, everything was well, and, but then they passed away. Right. So she was left with no one, essentially. And if I had not stepped up to the plate to to do this, mm -hmm. then the government would have handled her and there would have been the bare minimum done. Like with me doing it, I made sure that um, her, well, her, her meds were paid every month. Well, the government would have done that, but I made sure that her hair always looked nice and that her nails were done. I went and bought her clothes when I knew they needed them. And I would go and personally visit and, and sit with her. I mean, she didn't know me. She mm -hmm. didn't remember me. Mm -hmm. um, but I could give that personal care where the government would not do that. They would just basically pay her bills. Right. The bare so necessities. Yeah, she'd be left with nobody. Right. And that's really important to, you know, have someone to personally care about you and, you know, be able to buy you things that really helps with quality of life. Well, and that's exactly it. And just because she had and she had full blown Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. she didn't know me, but I would sit and talk to her. Um, we would just talk. I mean, I mean, I knew I knew of her husband and her family. So we, we would just talk and I'd make her laugh. 
Um, I'd take her for walks in the wheelchair in the nice weather, you know, just outside. Mm-hmm. Um, just that little bit of, care, a little bit of care. Yeah, that's you know? lovely. I mean, yeah, you don't want anybody to be alone. No, of course not. Let's take a moment to reflect. We know that one has to be deemed capable of making decisions in order to sign legal documentation surrounding substitute decision makers. In Ontario, what kinds of healthcare professionals can determine if someone is mentally capable? What types of assessments do they use to assess one's capabilities? Feel free to pause the recording for a few minutes as you actively reflect on your thoughts. Can I ask um, how you met this woman or how you knew this woman? Was she like local to your community? Well, my I have a second cousin, mm-hmm. my mother's cousin, um, who is still alive. She's 93 and just as smart as a tack. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> she's smarter than I am. And, and I she's my only living relative. OK, um, it was her. It was her sister-in-law. OK, but got you. she was close to 90. Mm-hmm. And she couldn't look after her because mm-hmm. she had just lost her husband and her two sons within oh, wow. four years. Wow. So physically and emotionally, she wasn't able to look after her. And I mean, I've known her, you know, she and my mom were best friends and cousins. So there was that family. And my mother knew the person who I looked after. Um, and she knew my mom. So there was there was a family connection. Yeah. Since this is a podcast, you know, about healthcare, I thought I would ask you, did you make a lot of um, healthcare decisions on uh, behalf of this person? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I made every decision okay. because I, I basically became her. And that's what a legal guardian does. So um, regardless, I mean, they would phone me and say, you know, can we give her her flu shot? Yes, you can. Mm-hmm. Um, she needs a dentist to come in. She need, Can we call? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Call a dentist. Um, okay. They would call and say she has a fever. Is it okay if we give her Tylenol? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I would go in um, at the end of the season and I would pack up her summer clothes and just put them away in her closet and bring out her winter clothes. And I always inspected her clothes to make sure that Mm-hmm. you know, they were properly taken care of. And if she needed new stuff, I would go buy it. So, you know, I made sure that her hair was cut every month. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, I, I actually became her. Oh, well, that's so great to hear that she had someone just as nice mm-hmm. as you to care for her. I have a very soft spot for seniors. Thank you, Bonnie, for sharing all of your experiences with me today. You're welcome. You're welcome. I hope it helps. Today, we've had the opportunity to hear Bonnie share her story about being a legal guardian for an older adult. She spoke briefly about the scenarios in which someone may be appointed a legal guardian, what her rules and duties were as a legal guardian, and how her role affected the older adult that she provided care for. Keep in mind that Bonnie's story represents just one perspective on legal guardianship and substitute decision-making. It's important for us to remember that every person has their own unique lived experience. For your group assignment, please answer the following questions. 1. Let's assume you're a physiotherapist and you have consent from Bonnie to treat the older adult that she has guardianship over. However, the older adult resists when you go to provide your treatment. 
In this event, what can you do and what can you not do based on Bonnie's approval? How would you approach the situation? Two, when treating patients with various levels of dementia, consent to treatment can be a significant challenge. What are some of the legal or regulatory and the ethical issues faced by healthcare professionals in this kind of situation? Three, what constitutes competence in terms of consent? When do you need an official competency assessment to be carried out? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of JeroCast. Please visit www.rehab.queensu.ca slash to access the full list of people and resources that made this project possible. Thank you.